Welcome back to the Grey Album podcast. I'm Peter, and I'm joined by Abraham, and today we'll be talking about three films. Uh, Annie Hall from 1977, Interiors from 1978, and Manhattan from 1979. So I, I picked these three movies. They're all uh, films directed and, and written, and sometimes starring uh, Woody Allen. I'm a big fan, but Abraham, you're, you're new to the... Uh, Woody Allen oeuvre so yeah what were some of your general thoughts and then maybe we can move on to Annie Hall uh, directly so yeah I've never seen a Woody Allen movie before so I watched these three um, within you know a week and a half and my initial thoughts were I enjoyed Annie Hall um, I, I enjoyed the, the I, and I enjoyed Manhattan. I enjoyed the two movies where he he is the the main character. Woody Allen is is while while he wrote the scripts, he's also the main character, and I think he's just such a likable person, even though he plays a very frustrating character in Annie Hall, that I just you, you can't help but 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 enjoy the movies, even if um, even if there are, are scenes set up to annoy you. Um, Interiors, on the other hand, I just found it like I don't know what was going on. I just it was just it was just a lot of nothing for me. I didn't really have any thoughts about it one way or the other. Uh, it's not like I di- disliked it, even though I didn't enjoy it. I don't really know how to phrase it, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously Woody Allen's a genius. You you can tell. You can just tell from his movies, as I said, especially the, the bigger budget ones where he's the he's starring in it. Um, the dialogue is incredibly well written. Um, the back and forths some of the scenes everything's done so precisely that you can tell that this is somebody who really knows what they're doing yeah i i i was i think people like have a love hate thing with it where like you either find him incredibly annoying or you're like oh wow this is actually kind of like a cool and interesting guy and i want to live in the like I, I think his his films like create this dream world that I want to inhabit because I know it's not like it's realistic, but it, it it it's clearly not real at the same time. Like it'll never happen. You'll never live in like a lovely New York apartment with like your <laughs> you, you, you know uh, lo- looking out on the on the, on the city skyline or, or whatever, but. Uh, I like they put his films like put me in a very comfortable, nice place. Uh, so that that's why I I like watching them. So let's let's get to Annie Hall, the first one. This one I chose. Uh, essentially, it's like his first probably big breakthrough, because before then he was making just straight comedy films what what are often called the early funny ones and they're they're good uh there's one called sleeper which is like a sci-fi parody there's a a good one called love and death which is a parody of uh like tolstoy and crime and punishment kind of a weird thing to 
set a comedy film around. But Annie Hall is the... I guess it's like the uh text of Woody Allen. It's like the one film I think you have have to see of his. And uh yeah, so so the the quick summary is uh the film stars Woody Allen as Alvy Singer and Diane Keaton as Annie Hall. Alvy, a comedian, wonders why his relationship with Annie Hall went sour. Uh it's told mostly in flashback and the film explores his childhood, his career, his previous marriages and his relationship with Annie and it looks at topics like psychoanalysis Jewishness, gender difference and uh, the contrast between New York and Los Angeles so immediately I think what hits you with Annie Hall is like the fourth wall break right at the beginning and then it ne it just never lets up that's my like uh, that's my quick analysis of it I think so yeah, when I was doing some background reading on Annie Hall, uh, I found out that the original plot it was supposed to be a murder mystery, and that the romance between Woody Allen and Diane Keaton was supposed to be just like some subplot that that wasn't really central to the movie. But as he was editing it, and the original take was like two and a half hours long, and they hadn't even filmed the ending at that point, um, as he was editing it, he found that the the romance was so. It was captured so well on screen, and that was really the life of the movie. And so he basically re-edited the whole thing to make it um, to make it the movie it was. So it was a total change in genre, total change in, in, in what the screenplay was, and what the movie was supposed to be. And that's how, how we got that movie. And, you know, when critics have looked at this, they've said that um, that's actually one of the reasons that the movie came off so well was that because the plot was elsewhere and eventually basically cut out of the movie, it allowed the romance to feel more organic, more care carefree, more realistic even, because it wasn't being like tied together by, by plot. It was just something that happened. The, mm. romance, the romance is just explored, and there's basically no plot to it. And that, that basically was a result of the plot being elsewhere and eventually, and eventually uh, not making it to the final cut. And I think... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, like it's interesting how how it works. If you if you realized like how much of it was cut, it's still so fluid, and like you can't really tell. It's only in hindsight where you're like, oh, like it is it is fairly chopped up, and you have these like flashbacks inside of flashbacks and whatever. But you don't really you don't really realize it's going on because you're just so taken with the with the chemistry between them. Yeah, and it's interesting that how like. A movie really comes together in the editing room and i'm only just sort of starting to appreciate that slightly because i'm i'm the one who does the editing for this podcast i actually appreciate the the artistic process that, that woody allen went through on that one mm. we should have like uh we should insert adr into our podcast you know adr uh, yeah uh, uh additional dialogue recording i think it's that thing where like uh actors after after the film is done they go into the studio to like record some of the some of the audio that wasn't captured make it make it more clear like during the during the editing process they they oh sure stuff. i see yeah 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 or like to to get like the television version without the without the swearing mm -hmm. they like ha have to re-record some of the swears to like make it make it more clean uh, have you seen any of the old bruce lee movies from the 60s and 70s. 
No, none of them. Oh, maybe we can do an, ep- an episode on that. You know, because mm. Hong Kong was so noisy and they didn't really have the time or the space to get studios, you know, out of the city, they used to just film everything during the day and then do all the audio at night. So the audio of the sounds, the, 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 uh, the dialogue, literally everything was, was done separately and then ed- edited together. That That's interesting. I, I saw a film... Actually, some of my friends might remember this, but on on one of my birthdays, uh, you know, I went to the cinema with a few friends, and there was nothing on, but I picked, and we went to see this film called The Bait, which is this, like, experimental British art film about a fishing village in Cornwall. And it's all in black and white, and it's all shot on, like, these ancient cameras. And the entire film all the dialogue is recorded afterwards so it it like it literally sounds like everyone is in a different room and it creates this like eerie effect but i i guess you can yeah you you can play around with the editing and the sound to so much really i i have some notes i've seen this probably like twice or three times at this point okay. so like i i'm used to the movie uh just so, but before we get to like you know specific scenes or, or things you like because it's it's one of those movies where like yeah you definitely think of specific scenes or moments and not much of it as a whole but like the the thing that uh gets me is like it uses every genre of comedy and like cinematic technique you can think of so it's like starts with a fourth wall break goes to a flashback there's like a slapstick comedy scene with the lobsters. There's the the subtitles on screen when he's uh, her first meets Annie. There's like um, when she becomes the ghost. There's like a split screen. There's bits of stand up. Uh, there's a cartoon even, and it just it does like every cinematic technique, but it never feels like too much. It's all very fluid and uh very fluidly like put in there i think yeah i I, exactly like now that you're mentioning it i didn't even i didn't even think of it in those terms like i noticed all these things and at the time like individually thought oh that's an interesting you know you you use as an interesting choice as a director but i never once put that all together and thought oh he's really trying to encompass every every aspect of of of, you know of, of comedy every kind of uh yeah, every aspect of comedy. I never thought of it like that. So that's interesting you brought it up, and that proves how fluid it was. And it, it so it doesn't. It clearly doesn't come across as jarring or forced, or, or or just weird. It actually works, which is quite interesting. But I think it yeah, also yeah. works because he's such a he's just such like a funny, genial guy, even though he's extremely annoying. I think, I think that's what. <laughs> what what do you find annoying about him? <laughs> well, just like you, you can you can tell he's he's constantly overthinking things. He's very cerebral. Uh, and that he uses that in the third movie as a as a as a jibe against one of the other characters, but you can tell that about him. Also, the fact that he every every problem he has seems to be an unforced error, and that's just so frustrating <laughs> to watch. Every every time he comes to a conundrum, every time he's he's suffering, it's he's suffering as the result of his own his own stupidity and his own bad choices, and, and not in a way where it's like a dilemma where it's, it's just one bad choice or the other. Everything is a complete unforced error. And it's just so grating just watching somebody, especially for the first half an hour before I sort of got into it. It was just so grating watching somebody just just constantly like do stupid things, that then hit them in the face again. Yeah, that 
the, I, I definitely like all, like all like... these relationship problems. It's so frustrating. <laughs> like, it doesn't have to be like this. This is all your fault. You just need to, just need to take a step back and and try and be a bit more agreeable. Yeah, he he definitely like sets himself up to fail a lot of the time, and like the, like. I love that scene. I think it's like the first marriage, and he's just talking about the JFK assassination. Yeah, that <laughs> that's was like, that was oh, really he, funny. he, yeah, he drove past the book depository, but how could the bullet like have hit? Like, that was uh, that would yeah. so be me. That would so be me. I know. Like when I first saw this, it was like the amount of parallels. Like I wasn't even aware of of Woody Allen really when I first saw this, but like. I cannot watch a film once it starts. Like, even if it's two minutes in, I just can't do it. Like, I I like four-hour black-and-white Nazi documentaries and try and make people watch them. Like, I dress in tweed. I, I hate driving. Like, so, so many, like, weird similarities. I think it's kind of like a formative movie for any, like, you know pseudo-intellectual in their in their 20s uh to watch just because like oh here, here's a kind of not role model but like an avatar of a different type of masculinity that you can you can inhabit without like you, you know it's not something you see that often in in movies yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, although for me, I think the JFK scene was literally the only relatable scene. <laughs> I, I don't think I related to him at all. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I just like, yeah, I dream of being like a seventies like New York intellectual and going to like dinner parties with people who write for the New York Review of Books or like, uh, you, you know, that 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 sort of stuff. So it was uh, the the whole, all of his New York movies I like because of that aspect, and and Man- Manhattan has it as as well. But uh, yeah, I I I found that relatable. Yeah, no, the whole time I was watching it, I was like, yeah, this is a total Peter movie. <laughs> yeah. I I love the... Did you pick up on the, the joke about... Uh, my favourite joke in the movie is if commentary and dissent had a merger and it was called dysentery. Yeah, I did it, pick up on that. It's yeah. like such a niche joke, yeah. but I, I, I love that one. And the like National Review reference as well. Yeah, I love oh, yeah, the National Review reference was hilarious. And then when she said it, oh, was it with her her friend who's like who plays guitar or whatever? He's a performer. Yeah, I was like, oh, you're you're dating a right wing rock star. And, you, and the way he said it was just it was just so, so perfect. Just like yeah, the, the, why, the, why don't yeah. you get William F. Buckley to yes. kill the spy? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, 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 that was a good line. Yeah, there's oh. also that. Uh, j- just another funny line which I thought was prescient is uh, he's after he's he plays tennis he says like oh i didn't shower because i don't like to show my body to a man of my gender <laughs> which like in the 70s was yeah. a funny kind of oh it doesn't make sense but now <laughs> yeah no in 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 manhattan uh when he tells his ex-wife uh is our who's who's obviously has custody of the, of the child with her le- with her new lesbian partner um, and then he asks, he asks her, is our, is our son wearing dresses now? And that's <laughs> like, ah, oh, hilarious. But, you know, 20, this is the 2020s now, and, you know, that times have changed. Yeah. It, it's kind of weird how, like, 
that type of liberalism was actually weirdly like conservative like like the film obviously you know it's it's not a conservative film in any sense but like that the that type of yeah it it seems like very like new deal type of liberalism where it's just like you know the, uh, let's have some equality let's help people let's let's help the poor but it it's not like insane and all these people kind of have have some standard they want to keep to i think uh, uh i'm not no? quite, not quite sure i agree with that and also i'm not quite sure i'm not quite sure that the new deal is the apt comparison for that point even if i did agree with it so i it's so, like did you notice in both annie hall and interiors he hates drugs the yes, like the cocaine yes. scenes are like okay in annie hall it's played for laughs but in in interiors it's just this like really depressing like cocaine slash rape scene and it just comes out of nowhere and he's clearly like clearly hates it and want, doesn't want people to do it and it must be like all around the place in the 70s yeah especially when you're in hollywood yeah yeah um yeah, no, and he always uh, there's a line in in Manhattan where he tells the 17 year old girl, uh, "What do you know? You grew up on you know drugs and television." <laughs> yeah, I I think it's more yeah it's probably not like uh, the New Deal liberalism point was a bit of a stretch, but there's definitely like an old man quality to it. Yeah, even though sure. at that point he's he's yeah, not. I mean, he, he's he's silent generation, so the silent generation had had a lot of standards. And I think I think that that comes through. You know, he's not he's not a boomer. Even if there's a lot of boomer humor and there's a lot of boomer cast and there's a lot of you know it's, <laughs> it's you know the late seventies, so you know the boomers are you know ascendant. He's not a boomer, and I think that that's what what comes across, and that's what maybe what holds it together. I don't know. Ah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, but I think I think I it, mean I, I I think it really actually I think it actually is a, it is an important factor because a lot of the a lot of the essence of these movies there's a lot there's like it's like it's like a sea of boomer but the fact that he's a silent gender and he's he's you know from 1935 so he's not like you know 1944 or something he's like a proper, yeah. proper silent gender i think that that brings a level of 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 class to it i think it also brings a level of self-awareness that that i don't think boomers would i think boomers would have been less likely to to have been capable of yeah because it becomes like some of his recent films which aren't great especially like he can't he's not very good at writing in other people's voices so like there was a recent one where like the woody allen stand-in character is played by timothy chalamet oof, and it just oof, oh that sounds horrible it really doesn't work because he's like spouting these lines about like 1940s jazz <laughs> and it, it just like <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of hilarious and I love it and I love how he like refuses to change but it, it's it's not like it's not especially funny <laughs> well like yeah one of his recent ones which is like filmed with because no one wants to work with him anymore and like filmed with all these like B movie, C movie actors, and uh, it's got all these scenes from like films, classic films, where he's he's lamenting the decline of the film industry, and like every one of those films was made before 1960. <laughs> like there, <laughs> there's not one film after 1960 that that he likes. Uh, like uh, you see, like the disdain for rock music because you have the 
the the Diane Keaton character, uh, the, the rock star guy, is played by Paul Simon from uh, Simon and Garfunkel. So uh, that's like another layer where I think he just wants to like make fun of them and and show how, yeah, how much he hates them really. <laughs> yeah, I did. I didn't pick on it. I didn't pick up on the fact that, that was uh, Simon from Simon and Garfunkel at all. So that's interesting. But yeah, and also the point that if, if he's anti rock music, again, that's another silent gen. Uh, characteristic. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you also have the, um, the as someone who loved like California and Los Angeles, you have the his his view of like Los Angeles as hell on earth, basically. <laughs> like uh where, you know, they have no culture, it's too hot, they celebrate Christmas where like there's no snow around. You have to uh, drive everywhere. You have to drive. Even that, there's a scene where he drives past a, a cinema, and on the what do you call it? Like the letters on the display on the like marquee or whatever it's called. The movies showing are like horror movies. Uh, both of them, I think they have like horrible names. It's like you know, Demon Hunter or something. Uh, so so even even that's like a brief little joke at the expense of L.A., which I think is unfair, but kind of funny anyway uh no but it, but it fits it suits his character so i think it adds yeah. to it rather than even if even if you think it's unfair i think it's it's appropriate did you pick up on any other cameos apart from paul simon there are a few mm, no i don't think i did no young christopher walken okay sure uh, and also yeah okay sure i did pick up on that but i I, yeah. I didn't think that was a cameo because he was young i thought it was just when he was a uh, not a famous uh, yeah it's not a cameo really yeah. but it's like a surprise of jeff goldblum as well no uh, i did not i did not pick up on that where, which no he's he's at the party uh he's at like the hollywood party and has a line where he calls someone and says like oh i forgot my mantra and it's i think it's jeff goldblum's first credited uh screen role where he has this one line so uh yeah a lot of like weird people like uh pop up in woody allen movies like what one of them has sylvester stallone as like an uncredited thug who beats woody <laughs> allen up <laughs> so yeah they're, they're, they're kind of like weird weird cameos like that but any any other thoughts on on any hall how, how charming did you find diane keaton I mean, she's obviously very good. I think I think now that I'm talking about it, one of the issues is that she's in all three movies. And so the, character, uh, yeah. the characters have kind of blended together, especially since I watched Manhattan last night. That's the, the representation of, of Diane Keaton that's, that's most fresh in my mind. Mm. So in Annie Hall, nothing, yeah, nothing too particular comes to mind. Yeah, I, I think that character, like became kind of influential like the fashion choices she makes like it's kind yeah. of androgynous yeah. and that that kind yeah of, exactly uh, she's quite a consistent character throughout the three movies seems to be yeah the uh, it's she, she, she like, smokes and she, she she smokes in all of them uh, he he doesn't smoke in any of them and there's one scene in Manhattan where he 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 protect he smokes and he says oh I, <laughs> I don't inhale I only take it in my mouth so I look good. <laughs> um, yeah yeah I, he doesn't really drink that much in any of them either. Yeah. He, he seems like kind of a straight, straight-laced guy. No, I think that's because well, he's so, he's so like, he's so anal, neurotic. neurotic yeah. yeah. 
That's why he doesn't. He doesn't do drugs or smoke or, or drink. He doesn't need it. He's already. He's already. He's already. <laughs> Jack, hyped up enough. Yeah. Like, can you imagine being that nervous? Like, I think I'm pretty nervous, yeah. but not. I, I, yeah. No. I, I actually, <laughs> an aside here. When I was in sixth grade, so that was maybe age eleven to twelve, I remember yeah. us kids were all talking about who would be the most likely to become a drug addict when we grew up. <laughs> and we were all saying, oh, is this this kid, Andrew? Oh, he's so hyper. He's probably the most one to take cocaine and stuff. And then our teacher said, no, no, no. It's the opposite way around. This kid is this kid is so neurotic, basically, that he's the least, <laughs> he's the least likely to take drugs. It's you, it's you, you know, sedated people. You're the ones who are most likely to need to need a kick from from hard drugs. So I, I never, I've never forgotten that. Uh, yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. I like you, you mentioned Diane Keaton being all, in all three movies. Like, one of the things I like about his films, because he, he's made, I think, almost 50 at this point. It's mm -hmm. just, like, his work ethic is kind of insane. And they're all... But which which they're, fits with the neurotic character, who doesn't, yeah. who doesn't indulge. Well, his, his whole thing, I think, he's terrified of death, and he just wants to, like, constantly work, I think, and put it off. Because, like, yeah. his whole worldview is, like, nihilistic, I guess. And, you know, if there's no god, then life has no meaning and uh he he has a line where he says like i don't want to live on through my work i want to live on in my apartment uh, <laughs> uh yeah but that, like that, he, that, he... that's like classic jewish humor <laughs> yeah so many good one-liners like i i quote this movie all the time and no one understands it like yeah. i quote the like i've been killing spiders since i was 30 line i'm pretty sure you quoted that to be like a, a, yeah. a year and a half ago and i, I didn't get it because no when, when, when i when that scene happened and i heard that line i was like oh, i'm sure i've heard someone say that before <laughs> i'm sure i've heard someone say that before. yeah it must have been you that that's like my my favorite one or uh yeah there are a few or, like even the the like the subtitle scene where they're talking about like photography like i've had that very thing happen to me multiple times <laughs> and i just wish i had like the subtitles uh so i could tell what the other person was saying it would be very helpful yeah just but... for the audience that the, there's actually subtitles that appear on screen yeah it, it's kind of it, it's like a joke about uh how when uh men and women are flirting with each other what they're really saying and the the you know the characters say something and then underneath are the subtitles that that explain it, and they're yeah they're being like really pretentious but uh, <laughs> in, in in a funny way. Yeah, I, I just uh, yeah, wanted to. I think to... that was quite original back then. I think it's probably been used a lot since then, but I think mm. it would have probably been quite original when he did it. Well, it it was this this movie was the blueprint for like the modern rom com. Like people, people complain about rom coms, and I, I haven't watched many of the modern ones because I know they're like they're horrible. But a good, a good, well written rom com can be can be a thing of beauty. And the, the the big twist here was oh they don't get together, and that was like that was new for the time as well. Mm, sure, uh, sure. So yeah, not not just that that innovation. No, I'm a, I'm a, like a, I'm like a two thousands rom com respecter. <laughs> yeah, I think even even in the two thousands, they they were pretty good. But I thought but they got, it, they got, yeah, the, the last fifteen years they've gone to shit. There hasn't been a good rom com since like two thousand eight or something. Yeah, I mean this one is good because like it's 
it's not like female wish fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's kind of like neurotic male wish fulfillment, maybe. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's not not something you you, you see very much. Uh, can we talk about interiors? I know you didn't. You, okay, you didn't I really, I literally have, like, with this I literally have nothing much. to say. It's, it's, it was, it's like I have a totally neutral, non nondescript, like nothing. Like I have, I have a, I, have okay. a I, I don't know what to say about this movie. It's also just just for the just for for the for the audience for the listeners. It's it's on a much lower budget than the than the than the um, Annie Hall the first movie and Manhattan the third mm. movie. They're, these are much bigger budget, more serious productions. This is a much smaller budget. It doesn't star Woody Allen, so it feels a bit. It feels like it feels like a third movie in a way that the other two seem much more related, even though it does star uh, Keaton as as the the main woman. Yeah, so the quick summary in Interiors is his first drama film and it's on the relationship between three sisters, uh, Renata played by Diane Keaton who's a poet uh, Flynn an actress and Joey who's kind of like a listless unemployed person and the, the dad of the family leaves the wife who's an interior designer and this kind of upheaves the family dynamic and ultimately has tragic consequences yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I, I, I chose it to get uh, to get a sense of like the flow of his career from movie to movie. So it starts with Annie Hall, which is like an all-time uh, classic comedy, and then you have Interiors, which is a uh, his first serious drama. He's not starring in it. I think it's one of his first films where where he's not in it. It's all based on like Scandinavian cinema. And then you have Manhattan, which I think like fuses the the comedy and the drama in in like a a really satisfying way. And definitely like Interiors, I don't think it got great reviews. It's it's not like one of his. It's not in the top ten. It might be in like the top twenty or thirty, but it it's definitely not one of those like beloved Woody Allen movies. But it it's one of them one of the ones I enjoy perversely because I, f- I find it the most cozy one. I find it the most like it, it, it's the most like Woody Allen world because I just love the costume design of the, the the set design and it just it just puts me in this like super comfortable place even though like all this drama's going on. But like everyone is so impeccably well dressed, like I've never seen something like that. Because <laughs> like that's the main thing I love about the movie is like how how good it looks. But there's a lot of like stuff done with color, so all the characters are in these like dark muted colors or like. Uh, the, there's a line where the interior designer, I love the slide. She said like Renata calls it ice gray. Yeah, yeah I, which... I picked up on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just found it really funny for some reason. I don't know if it's the syntax or something, but uh, yeah. And then halfway through the film, you have the you have the new wife coming in, and she's the only one who's dressed in colorful clothing, and like uh, and like she likes music, she enjoys life, she she gives the she gives the husband another another slice of cheesecake. And, like she's breaking up the kind of like stultifying like wasp dynamic of the family where they don't 
like they're just all like pent up and and sad and like looking out looking out of windows all the time i i don't want to monologue but i i have a few more thoughts no fucking go go off bro good good um yeah so so i just like it's like weirdly i find it really funny like i find the i find her suicide scene uh when when she like meticulously gets all the tape and it, it goes on for like two minutes and she tapes all of the windows in her like lovely spacious apartment and then like runs out of tape and has another another uh, wheel of tape that that she gets out and like tapes all the windows and then turns on like the the gas which i don't know seems like a very inefficient way of doing things but uh uh th- that scene i found funny i like the the drug scene we talked about that just like comes out of nowhere and is like weirdly dark but also like no one like comments on it in the film it just kind of happens where uh one of the one of the sisters is like a hollywood actress and, and she get, comes to the uh, family like re re reunion and then gets uh assaulted by by the husband of, of the other sister i yeah I, I i just like the like the american beach at the end where it's all it's all gray yeah, it's very it's much a new england of, beach or a, yeah cold beach, yeah. and nice that there's a scene at the end where um i think yeah it's like a flashback to when the family was like growing up and they're um uh, they're decorating the christmas tree and again, I just like, what a nice looking Christmas tree. How how like careful all the like and precise all the set design and thing thing in the movie is. But I think it's definitely one that like it's a movie that appeals to like hardcore Woody Allen fans. It's not like uh yeah, it's it's not one of the very first ones uh you would go to. I I guess the you know how you like the band Weezer? Yeah. Do you like them so much that, like, you enjoy, like, the bad stuff more than some of the good stuff? Yes, but also part of being a Weezer fan is also, like, hating, like, some of Weezer. Like, you, you have to, if, if you don't hate, like, some of their albums, some <laughs> of their stuff, then you're not a true Weezer fan. You have to, like, hate some stuff with a passion. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't think that's the case for, for being a Woody Allen fan, that you have to, like, hate half his movies. Well, it, it's not so much the hate, but it's like finding, like finding enjoyment in the bad stuff. Yeah, no, like, sure, sure, ha- I completely, completely p- agree. Picking yeah. out like a yeah. weird movie, like Interiors, yeah. which, yeah. like, I, I, he didn't make that many movies like this one, and it's, n- it's not like a total success, but it's just one I, I like connect with on a level that I wouldn't, wouldn't have assumed I would. No, that, no, uh, that makes that makes total sense. That, that, I think, I think, I think that happens in a. In a whole lot of areas in life, to be honest. But speaking yeah. of Weezer, just just seeing as uh, as you mentioned it, we didn't we didn't plan this. Yesterday, I I, I was just listen, I was listening to Weezer, and I, like a new a new song came along, and it was really good. And I yeah. was like, huh? And then I looked, and it was in one of my favorite albums. But I was like, I've listened to this oh. album like a hundred times. How come I haven't heard this song before? And then I rela- then I so I looked it up. And it turns out it was a bonus only in the vinyl, only in the vinyl edition ah. of that album. And so I was literally mad. Like this is one of my favorite albums. And I didn't know it had like this is literally one of like the best songs on the album, and I didn't know about it until until yesterday. 
Yeah. So yeah, funny you I, brought up Weezer. I was like literally triggered, but also it's also def- good. Like I got an extra song on one of the albums I really like, and it's one of their best songs. So I guess it's all good. Yeah, I I'm not sure Weezer are like a genius level band, but th- there's a thing where like a lot of these uh, artistic geniuses. People, some of their work that's not their very best work, people like to like look down on or mock or say, oh, it's actually, it's horrible. When in fact it's pretty good, it's just not as good as like their potential. And I find, yeah, I find it just interesting to like consider the failures and like look for the, for the bright spots there. Um, yeah, in case anybody's wondering, the album was the season spring album. And the song was across ah. the meadow, just in case people are, are getting to that. I get so frustrated on podcasts when they mention <laughs> something like that and they don't get the specifics. I literally tear my, my, my hair out. So if there's anyone listening and they're getting super frustrated about you just mentioning an album and a song, uh, there it is for you. Okay, I will I will put that on my, my, my Spotify uh, playlist as well. Before we, before we get to Manhattan, would you like to hear my my Woody Allen anecdote. Yes, let's go. Okay, so picture this. I'm about... I don't know how old I was. I think I was about 12. Okay. And I think it's my it's my first time in New York. I went with my parents. And uh, my my mum is keen to find, like, something for us to do, like, a, you know, go to a Broadway show or something. And... Uh, she gets us tickets to see Woody Allen play the clarinet. If you if you don't know, he's like a he's a passionate clarinetist, but he's not he's not amazing. I think he he just like solidly plays like pre-war jazz on his clarinet with a band, and uh, he would do this every week at this hotel called the Carlisle, which is like a legendary like five-star hotel. And um, yeah, so so we got tickets for this. I I had no clue who he was. I think I like very vaguely knew he was like a director, and I knew he had the glasses, and that's about it. And uh, the way the way it was done, it's it wasn't like a concert. It was in a dining room. So like he was playing jazz and there were like waiters serving serving like hotel food to you. And um yeah, we, we went to see it. He he comes out, he's this like sh- short little man, he like gets the clarinet out of his case. And before before it starts, who else do we see? Who else goes past our table? But legendary actor Nicolas Cage oh wow and he was there he was like sitting like I don't know like two or three tables uh, behind us I remember I distinctly remember passing him on, on, on the way to the loo and like I knew who he was from the National Treasure movies which were like my my as a ten year old and maybe still they are one of my one of my favorite films. I, I he... really like the first one. I couldn't stand the second one. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh I I, I I view them as like one big thing. I don't really differentiate. But okay. uh he, hey, well, he maybe was we'll do there... an episode on National Treasure then. <laughs> that that's a good idea. Yeah, he was there with his 
I think it was like his third wife, who I remember we looked up afterwards, and she was like a sushi waitress that he like married like a week after meeting her, <laughs> and then like divorced a year after uh, uh, after the concert. And yeah, he he was there. Woody Allen played the clarinet, and I and I seem to remember. I asked my mom that afterwards uh, they like. Woody Allen like came up to Nicolas Cage, like shook his hand, and they spoke for about ten minutes. But that that's like my my biggest celebrity sighting, and like a a weirdly like niche and specific one of two people you wouldn't really expect to meet. But uh, yeah, that's my that's my anecdote. Yeah, that, that no, that's amazing. Did you did you get food? Were were you being served as well while that happened? Or you just... yeah, we were. I I I have no idea what I had. I, I was too young. Yeah, sure. I. Uh, another i remember weirdly so nicholas cage's hair it he had like a haircut and at the back by the collar it was like cut diagonally so it wasn't like a straight line it was like a descending like slope and i remember we all commented on this and thought it was really weird uh so it, it, it's strange how like certain things uh stick in your mind but uh yeah i, I i'm i'm glad I, I i saw him uh well both nicholas cage and and woody allen because it's like at that point i would have thought woody allen wouldn't have that many years on this earth but he's he's still kicking around for more than more than 10 years later so that's that, that's good to see when was his most recent movie do you know uh so he had one two years ago and he has one coming out uh had one i think it came out at can or something so it'll probably be released early next year but the thing with his most recent movie so his most recent movie was uh called rifkin's festival and it, it was basically horrible it was like terrible but uh i went to see it in the cinema in in an unnamed Eastern European country because uh, that's the only place it's playing. Like, it, wa it wasn't, it wasn't uh, put into distribution in the UK or the US. Uh, whereas in Europe, in, like, France, in, in Spain, he's still, like, a big deal. And uh, his films are, like, still, still in the cinemas. But the, the Anglosphere has kind of prefers to forget him for mm -hmm. for various reasons yeah yeah and they all he's... seem to end up in france for some reason don't they <laughs> that is funny yeah <laughs> his new movie is entirely in french as well like which i don't know how how that works but uh the the interesting thing is like just when you think he's lost it when he's made like four bad or mediocre movies in a row he makes like a pretty decent one again mm -hmm. so like i i have no idea how it works i i think he just probably has no uh yeah he has no like filter and just like pumps stuff out as fast as possible mm -hmm. um that that leads to definite unevenness but also uh a relatively high number of of quality movies okay should we talk about Manhattan? Yes, let let's do it. Was this, was this your favorite one of the three? I think it was the one I enjoyed the most, and I think 
the reason for that is that I got into the rhythm. Like I, I, I was in his mind at that point. Uh, as I said, for the first half an hour, forty-five minutes of Annie Hall, I was just, I was like, I was appreciating it, but I was also extremely frustrated at uh, <laughs> how annoying he is and his unfortunate errors. Yeah. I think that was toned down a bit in Manhattan. So I think his his geniality showed more, and his annoying side, while still there, was was toned down slightly. And also the fact, as I said, that I was in his mind, I I understood who he was and what his deal was, and I could just like put my put my irritation to the side if it was there, and appreciate appreciate the art. Yeah, I definitely think like it's a whole. His movies are like a whole genre of their own. And I, li- I like seeing how, like, similar and different they are to each other. Like, it's similar to Annie Hall in that it's set in New York and it, it star- stars Woody Allen and he has, like, romantic troubles. But then in, in some ways it's different. You have the black and white photography, you have the the, the jazz, you know, soundtrack by, by George Gershwin. And, yeah, in... in in many respects, yeah, Annie Hall and Manhattan are like the the really classic ones, I think. Uh, so I can see why why you like those the most. Right. So I got a point about Manhattan. In that scene where Woody first meets Dan Keaton and she's being, you know, the the annoying pseudo intellectual art snob. One of the things she does is she dunks on Igmar Bergman, who's a, a Swedish film director, and to, Woody is is you know enraged by that, and he respond he responds. Bergman, Bergman's the only genius in cinema today, and I found that quite interesting because the previous movie, Interiors, is heavily influenced by Bergman, and also you know basically on the themes, uh, on like the the dynamics of of you know family dysfunction, the visuals, uh, and and uh, kind of the the emotional state of the movie. And so I was wondering if, if that line by, by, by Woody where he says, you know, b- 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 he, he, he says, Bergman's the only genius in cinema today. I wonder if that's a, a jibe at the critics of Interiors because Interiors didn't, uh, didn't, do, oh, so well, didn't do so well at the, at the, with the critics. And he, he mentions it a couple of times later, like when he's with, he's with his younger girlfriend he, he, and he's complaining about Dan Keaton. He says, oh, that, what she said about, about uh, Bergman, oh, that really... That was really too much, so I wonder if that's any a subtle reference to to the negative reception or or lukewarm reception to interiors. Yeah, he he's definitely a big Bergman fan, and I think it it it's like a lot of his films are are kind of inspired by it. I wonder, like the the thing I think about, like I don't think I've seen much Bergman or like French French cinema. Woody Allen is a big fan of French cinema. And it just, it doesn't seem that interesting to me. And I, I look at, like, American cinema as where it's at. But then the Americans look at look at European cinema as being, like, the sophisticated, chic, sort of uh, smart cinema. But then uh, Europe is now now the place where Woody Allen is probably most, most loved in, in places like France or Spain. So that there's this kind of... Uh, you know, both sides of the Atlantic prefer the the other one when it comes to their movies. Yeah, I think that was, might just be a case of I think Americans are always are always like self conscious about I don't they they feel less sophisticated compared to Europeans. They're always they're always you know bigging up Europe, bigging up France especially. Um, 
especially like liberal Americans. I think conservative Americans, for some reason, they have this this real disdain for France. I've noticed that. <laughs> I really know. I really I've noticed this like consistently. Like my, like uh, the, the like American conservatives, especially of like the boomer ilk, like they really really don't like France, and of course the Fr- French uh, don't like them back, and you know the yeah. rubes and everything. Fair enough. Um, but I think like liberal Americans, they're, they're very they're very self-conscious about not being as sophisticated as Europeans. And I would, of course, I think in, you know, a, a, an art setting, whether that's, you know, film or, or any other art form, like that might be particularly pronounced. Like they might mm. really feel, even if, I, th- I think also because the American movies are, are the big movies, the blockbusters, you know, uh, the, 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 the international bestsellers, whereas the European movies are more artsy and whatever, even if, as you said i i don't particularly find them that that great i think that sort of intensifies the american uh sort of fascination with them or the the american yeah art fans fascination with european movies because they're not on these big budgets because they're much more constrained and focus more on 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 characters or dialogue and less on special effects and and big plots or whatever that sort of intensifies that already existing um feeling of of, of inferiority compared to european you know in the artistic realm and uh, i i also think like the 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 willie allen films like romanticize new york and uh america in general but uh, but more new york and if if you're an american you just kind of you might roll your eyes at that whereas the you you know the the parisian intellectual uh despite disdaining uh, the u.s for their for their hamburgers and and whatever uh they're they could be drawn into that kind of romantic idealized world more than more than someone who's who's native to america yeah yeah that's that's true but all, but also at the same time i think because america is so big like there's so many people all across america that have never been to new york probably will never go to new york and so maybe they have some of the same kind of wonder that, that Europeans feel. I think if you're mm. just some like working class guy from Queens or the Bronx or something, you might you might have a totally different attitude towards these movies and the how how magical it makes New York seem. But if you're some guy from Iowa, if you're like a, if you're like a like an aspiring educated, you know, someone who's trying to climb the social hierarchy, trying to be sophisticated, and you're from like Iowa or Indiana or some some like midwestern state or, or wherever. Then it might be you might have a have a real appreciation for something like that. One thing I sort of noticed and, and wanted to look up some more details on was that I found it interesting that his relationship with the younger girl was not shot through any kind of moral lens. Um, so it's not frowned upon. None of the other characters seem to judge him. None of the other guys are like, "Oh, hey, yeah, you know, elbowing him in the ribs, saying, yeah, good on you, man. You got this younger girl.'" There's nothing that it's just it's just considered normal. I don't know if that's a, a 70s thing or what, but that just seemed it seemed interesting to me. So I looked it up and to see if, if Woody had done had given any uh, any further commentary on it. And I found this quote from him where he's talking about uh, the character falling for Diane Keaton. And he says, instead, he falls for the annoying pseudo intellectual or probably intellectual to some degree. Diane Keaton. He instinctively or habitually has learned to go for this kind of woman, to go for the neurotic, difficult, complicated woman, and not to see the forest from the trees, not to see that right in front of him is somebody he could be happy with. 
So that leads me to think that the that, that her age and her innocence are just showing are just there as a contrast really to the pseudo intellectual neuroticism of of his whole life and all the people he surrounds himself with and particularly the, the Diane Keaton character. And so for mm. me that that kind of clears it up as to why there's no judgment or encouragement or anything one way or the other towards his, his you know, massive age gap relationship, even though it from a current day perspective is super, super weird. Um, I think because he wants what Woody Allen in the role of director is wanting to do or in the role of a screenwriter is wanting to do is to try and contrast Diane Keaton's character with the opposite with to have a strong contrast as possible and so that's why yeah with uh, Mariel Hemingway who is strangely enough I think the the granddaughter of Ernest Hemingway which is just like a weird weird connection but uh, yeah, I and I think the the question at the end of the film is obviously, do they stay together after after she leaves for London? And to me, the answer is obviously not. And uh, you know, they 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 live their separate lives. But I I, I wonder what what you thought about that. Yeah, I mean, come on, let's be real. Of course, it didn't it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> I think one of them would yeah. have had to make a sacrifice for it to go to go to go somewhere and and she was willing to yeah. but he discouraged her for fair enough and so i don't think that would have happened yeah he treats her pretty badly as well yeah yeah for real no cap <laughs> good good to uh you know make sure our zoomer listeners yeah. understand <laughs> what's going on what well, one one thing i noticed that was seemed to be a flaw or a criticism, something I I I I, th- I thought he, he d- shouldn't have come across that way was that um, Diane Keaton, Diane Keaton's character when she's first introduced, she's extremely obnoxious, like over the top, and then after like the the maybe two or three scenes of her in that mode, she just completely changes and she stops being obnoxious and she's now just like a a, a nice vulnerable, you know, kind woman, and I felt yeah. like the, the contrast there was was too much. Not enough of her obnoxious side came across in the later scenes, and not enough of her, you know, genial side came across in the in the beginning. I felt like it was two different characters almost. Uh, my my take on that is like it's all through like his eyes, it's all through the the Woody Allen character played by called sorry called Isaac Davis. It's all through his eyes. So like at the beginning, he's just predisposed to hate her, hmm. and then slowly he's probably like. He likes her a bit too much, and like, though, 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 yeah, that might just be an interpretation of. No, what I mean it, it, ma- it makes sense. Clumsy screenwriting. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I, th- I think that, that that that's a that's a valid interpretation. To be honest, I could imagine a, a film critic, even though I don't have that much respect for film critics, coming up <laughs> with that same same evaluation. Um, but there was one moment when in, when she was in her obnoxious state where she says Van Gogh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, American moment. They call him Van Gogh, which is the most retarded thing ever. I always say Van Gogh. Every every sort of civilized person I know says Van Gogh. To call him Van Gogh is literally makes me cringe every time I hear an American saying that. I literally it's, cringe so much. It's it's almost worse than Notre Dame. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh Notre Dame literally. Oh, oh, oh. That literally triggers me so much. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> though to call Van Gogh overrated is is uh you know he he's so good at writing this like 
pseudo intellectual dialogue. It's just like <laughs> I, I I laugh so much at those those uh, all, all those lines because they like uh, like a, a lot. I like I've read his autobiography, mm-hmm. and he I don't know if it's like false modesty or whatever. But he keeps saying, like, oh, he doesn't actually understand a lot of the stuff he talks about in his films. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, he just says, oh, I just, like, throw in the name Nietzsche every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks I'm this kind of genius where, like, I'm not actually doing anything that impressive. Like, it's not, it's just a surface level, uh, like, glance at all these ideas. Like, I'm not doing anything (laughs) philosophical, really. But when he writes these scenes where he he, he basically mocks like these these phony pseudo intellectual people, um, yeah, I can just imagine him in real life like constantly being around people like that and constantly making his you know Woody Allen mocking faces whenever they say something. And just like raises his eyebrows for a second and you know looks to one side. I can just imagine that being like a constant throughout his his life, especially you know post post directorial success. So I can see him throwing some shade at these people in his movies, you know. Yeah, I I'm just looking at my notes and I have the words Eric Andre show written down, <laughs> and I cannot for the life of me remember <laughs> why I wrote that down. <laughs> Is there a scene that's like the Eric Andre show? <laughs> oh, oh, the, oh, yeah, there is one scene where. Oh, I know. Is it like the, the... J- Jimmy Carter one? Right, have... what's that? Remind me. So it's like it's it's like a TV, it's like a satirical TV show in the movie where some guy is interviewing this like douchebag in a baseball hat, and he's got his comatose wife there, or his uh, you know catatonic wife. Sorry. Yeah. And he's asking them what, what they think about Jimmy Carter. Is that what you're thinking? Oh of? yeah, and he's like, it's like it's like a, a parody of of the of talk shows. Oh, and he he he's the writer like they're, they're like in the room above and yeah like looking down da- yeah that's, that's it i think that's maybe that's, that's why i wrote down eric andre show yeah. see it wasn't but, but, it yeah. wasn't totally <laughs> insane <laughs> but why why eric andre specifically and what was the point we, we need to get to the bottom of this <laughs> well just the fact it was like a talk show gone wrong yeah like a, a parody of a yeah. <laughs> of like a talk show i don't I, I'm glad I hadn't gone insane because, like, yeah. yeah, when I looked at it back in my notes, I was like, wait, why did I possibly <laughs> write this? <laughs> like, um, yeah. Uh, I I have to say, I, like, I enjoyed the his friend and his wife, the Yale character mm-hmm. and his wife. I just, I don't know, I found them kind of funny, but... Uh, the whole thing in Manhattan, which I, I was surprised you were like more triggered by by Woody in Annie Hall, is like in Manhattan they're all horrible people, mm-hmm. apart from the teenage girl, yeah, who's like the one morally <laughs> upstanding character, and I think that's deliberate. Like his, all the characters behave like just terribly. They're like. They're all horrible. Yeah, I mean, you you love these movies. The, the, this is your stuff. Just go off. Don't feel like oh, I'm monologuing. Yeah, much. just oh, is that off. okay? Good. Just go Good. off. Be, you know, I'm gonna let you cook, <laughs> as the zoomers say. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Oh, you don't but, hear uh, that? Let, let him cook means just like like let him just do his thing. Like just like okay, good. Don't don't interrupt. Uh, him. Let him. T- yeah. So Peter, go cook. Yeah, J- just a few other things I I appreciated in Manhattan. 
I think it's one of like the most beautiful looking movies I've seen. Like the the black and white is stunning. Like New York looks gorgeous, especially in that opening montage. And I think that there's a closing montage at the end. The music really fits it. Um, I think, yeah, all, all all the Woody Allen films I think have a score that's just taken from other other things. There's there's very little original music in them. So this one just uses uh, George Gershwin, the the jazz composer. And then other ones use, I don't know, like classical music or or jazz or or other music. But very very rarely do they have a a written out score. Uh, it also it has the classic Woody Allen font, which appears in almost all of his movies since then, uh, and in the title cards and so on. Like, I just appreciate how one guy got the chance to make movies and they're they're just his vision and no one else could make them and it's strange that they became popular and they're no longer popular but they were very popular for a for a moment in the 70s and 80s and it's kind of bizarre that this guy's like preoccupations with like psychoanalysis and, and like pseudo intellectualism and and new york life just became like a mainstream uh, thing that people people would go and watch. Like I I I don't think you would see it uh, now in in the very same way. Yeah, you you just dropped, brought up a point that I want, that I wanted to mention but, but forgot was which he seems to constantly mention you know psychotherapy, <laughs> normal therapy, having a therapist, therapist being no good, therapist working for everybody else apart from him. This 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 seems seems to be some some big thing in his life where therapy seems to be something that's on his mind a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know what that is. If it if it's like a Jewish thing or if it's a New York thing or like it leads to some great jokes about like uh it's always like the Diane Keaton character has a good relationship with a therapist. Um Woody Allen's therapist is always some like strict, like <laughs> strict Freudian who, <laughs> who like, yeah, won't. Uh, I I think that there's a joke in one of them where like the therapist, uh, or sorry, they they call it an analyst because I think if you're a Freudian, you're a psychoanalyst compared ah, to yeah, yeah. compared to these modern wishy washy therapists mm-hmm. where it's just like a woman talking to you about your feelings. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but th- there's a joke where in in classic Freudianism, you pay even if you don't turn up to the session. Like you have a weekly session at a certain time, and you're not you're not really allowed to change it. And you pay even if you don't turn up. And I think he has a joke where like his his analyst makes him pay even once he's died, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I thought was funny. But um, yeah the 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 psychoanalysis thing it's just like another background like uh woody allen specific thing that just constantly appears in the movies and i don't know why but i i just find i find the idea of having like a really expensive psychoanalyst kind of funny and he must find it funny too even though he probably has one himself but like uh there's something inherently amusing about like paying a man with a phd 
to uh, <laughs> to listen to you whine to him like for an hour a week on a on a sofa. Yeah, there's a scene where in in Manhattan where uh, Woody is talking to Diane Keaton, and, and this is on like one of their first walks together, and she mentions that she has to go and look after her dog or something, something to do with her dog, and and he he asks what type of dog it is, and she was like, oh, it's a, it's a it's a Dachshund. Um, and then she says, you know, it's, it's a penis substitute for me. And he replies with, oh, then I would have thought in your case it would have been a Great Dane. And so it's, <laughs> I found that funny. And also just like the repeated like Freudian references, um, like at least at least in that case, you know, it, it came across funny. I don't know. I just. I just yeah. And then the, the right after he says, like, oh, I'm working on a short story about my mother called The Castrating Zionist. <laughs> yeah. Which is <laughs> <laughs> like another another one there but uh yeah some some good like i'm one of the things that made me like these movies is just how funny they are like i i don't find that many modern day comedies to be terribly funny even like i don't know the the seth rogan films or like the from about 10 years ago I watch them, but I don't laugh that much. Like, occasionally I laugh, but uh, here, I just like the style of, like, the constant one-liners, the constant kind of puns and, and witty jokes. Oh, man, those those Seth Rogen movies, like, before he became terrible, like, before, like, like old Seth Rogen, like, <laughs> crap, new Seth Rogen, they, those were, like, my guilty pleasure back, back, back in those days, like, from, like, 2010 to 2017 or whenever it was. Like, those were 100% my guilty pleasure. Um, I I never watched them when they came out. I I watched them all like in the space of a month uh during COVID because they were they were just so watchable. But I was like more I was more in them for the story, if you know what I mean. Like okay. they 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 all work as 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 films like Pineapple Express or uh have you seen the one where it's like the apocalypse, and they're all playing themselves. Bro, that's literally my favorite one. This, this yeah, is the that's end the best one. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's so good. Oh my god, bro. <laughs> I know. I like literally. I know. I'm like like shaming myself right now, but I fucking love that movie so much. Oh my goodness. Like like the black guy. What's his name? Oh, Chris. Some, no, what's his name? What's, let me let me look this up. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love this movie so much. I, mean, like, I was expecting uh, yeah, to be talking about these movies on this episode. <laughs> oh my goodness. Let me look it up. Yeah, 20, 2013 or ten. I can't believe that movie came out ten years ago. Oh, it has Danny McBride in it, and he's like the he has Channing Tatum as like his gimp. Oh man, this was like <laughs> peak humor for me back then. Craig Robinson, that's the guy I'm thinking of. Craig Robinson. Oh right, yeah. And then he like takes the towel and he's like, for the last time in a long time, take your panties off, and he like charges the demon. Oh man, that was like my favorite. Wow. That was like my favorite. <laughs> And it has freaking nerve, it has freaking but... Fogel from from Superbad in it, Christopher Mintz Blast. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh wow. Oh yeah, they had like yeah. Rihanna doing a cameo. It had, literally had everybody. It literally had everybody from like that, that, that like twenty ten like bro culture. Everyone was there. Well, because you have you have the the Seth Rogen and I think his collaborators Evan Goldberg movies, which are like. The, yeah, this is the end. Uh, super bad. Uh, a few others. Twenty one Jump Street. Twenty two Jump Street. Yeah, and then you Pineapple Express, of course, 
and then you have the uh, neighbors as well. And yeah, then you I have didn't the like jo- neighbors so much. Yeah, the, the, it's kind of towards the tail end yeah, of, yeah. of what they were doing. But then you have the the Judd Apatow movies, which often starred Seth Rogen, and it, they're similar, but they're kind of like different in tone. So you have like Forty Year Old Virgin and. Uh, What's that one with with Russell Brand where he's? Oh, get him to the like, Greek. Th- there's that one, but there's also he's he's like in Hawaii. Paul Rudd is in it. Wait, I don't know which one that is. Uh, I think in Get Him to the Greek, Russell Brand is playing the ca- the same character he played in that movie. Oh yeah, forgetting Sarah Marshall. Okay, that's I, it. I, 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 I recommend that one. Okay, but okay. uh. Yeah, it's kind of this whole like weird universe of. Yeah. Uh, I think I think it mid- ended like the last movie in that in that universe that was good, like the, like the, what I consider like the bookend of it. The first one is like Pineapple Express, and then the bookend is the night before. Have you seen the night before? Is it's that a, the Christmas? That's the Christmas movie. one. Yeah. Oh, I remember. I remember seeing it and just being kind of mad on it, but. Uh... But there, there no, have been was, similar yeah. ones. That one has yeah. like extreme emotional significance for me. I'm not sure. Oh, what, what, not sure what's not... the? Okay. I, I don't no. know. I'll oh, fuck it. I'll go into it. Why not? So I so that Christmas of that year, like two of my best friends basically stopped talking to me, and this was like my last chance to get them to be my friends again. And I watched this movie, and that's 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 the plot of the movie. Is one guy is like his two friends don't talk to him anymore, and he wants to get them back. And he and like the whole movie is like you know him going through trials to get that to happen and the Christmas magic and everything Christmas miracle and then it happens and he gets his two friends back and so I was like I can fucking do this let's go let me try my best I tried of course I totally failed but I was inspired by that movie to at least give it a shot so oh the the spirit of Christmas yeah oh wow okay well it it's good that we we kind of compared <laughs> compared the the millennial comedy style versus the the boomer slash silent generation uh, but no like tw- like 2010 like that that period like five years you know uh, before and after 2010 that was like a peak that was like when millennials were basically unleashed like they were allowed to like like be creative and not have to you know bow to, to woke culture or or be politically correct or they could just do what they wanted and there was like this whole like bro I think I think maybe the bro the bro culture was so toxic or like had some toxic elements that maybe that contributed to the woke backlash, but like I don't like I think one of the one of the the things that like represents that that period of time for me like perfectly is like LMFAO the 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 band the like the duo. Oh yeah, yeah. Par- party rockers in the house. Um, <laughs> what's what was the other song? They had like two big hits: party rockers in the house, and the other one was. Let me look. At oh, uh, I'm sexy and I know it. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm surprised there's like not a name for that whole kind of cultural thing that happened for those for those like ten years, like uh, or eight years. It was like 2005 to like yeah, 2013, 2014. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, and that. I think that they like try to resurrect it every once in a while and it just fails. Yeah. yeah. And I don't I don't know why that is if if it's like people people get their comedy from the internet now or if it's uh 
if it's just people people's tastes have changed the quality of uh the stuff they're producing now is worse uh like that there was that movie i didn't go and see it but it was the the jennifer lawrence rom-com oh i saw that the one or, it was like jennifer lawrence and like the zoomer kid yes yeah and i, I think that that kind of failed yeah it was me. it was totally mid it was totally mid like they tried their best jennifer lawrence is a great actress but like it totally failed it was just yeah so it was, all the jokes fell flat like some of the, some of them were fun there were some funny funny scenes there was some like uh you know millennial versus zoomer scene so she's 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 <laughs> looking for him in a high school like prom party and she's like going like door to door and you know she opens the door and there's like a guy and a girl both in bed together and they're just like scrolling on their phones instead of having sex and it's supposed to be like hey, hey, these zoomers they're on their wow. phones <laughs> and it's like yeah okay okay whatever um but yeah, I mean the the movie, it just and also the, the the kid. I don't know what, what his name is. The the kid who was like the Zoomer kid. Yeah, he, he wasn't that charismatic either. So it just it just fell flat. Even though Jennifer Lawrence did her best. Yeah, there's the, like. I wonder if we're ever gonna get get back to that that sort of thing. Maybe not even like tone wise. Just like, will there be like. The, the type of comedy that you watch with your friends on DVD at a sleepover. Like, yeah, after like, uh... with like loads of Doritos and dips <laughs> and sodas or fizzy drinks. Yeah. Because I think people still watch those, you know, people still watch Superbad. Yeah, uh, no, at so that true. Age. Literally they so don't, true. They don't yeah. watch anything. Or The Hangover. We miss yeah. The Hangover, yeah. which is like, yeah. I think that was the the first one that like made me get into that whole genre just because like i i appreciated the gimmick like i loved the 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 kind of the pitch where oh it's these people wake up and then they have to piece together their night mm -hmm. it's just like such a smart smart way to structure a movie uh that 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 was the one that is probably my, my favorite and, uh, along with this is the end but yeah. Yeah, I think that the, the like Twenty One Jump Street was amazing, and Twenty One Jump Street, uh, tw sorry, Twenty Two Jump Street also was good. Like they managed mm. to to keep it normally with like the the second one in these kind of movies like sucks. Like Neighbors versus Neighbors Two, both they both of them were kind of bad, but Neighbors Two like even sucked even more. But like Twenty Two Jump Street wasn't too bad either. Um, I liked how in the first one in Twenty One Jump Street they had uh, like. In both of them, it was like a, re a reversal of expectations. So in the first one, it was supposed to be Channing Tatum is going to—he's going back to high school. He's going to be a total Chad, just like he was back when he was in high school. And then Jonah Hill's going to be the nerd again. So they're both not—they're both—that's how it's presented. But actually, like even back then, there was like the beginnings of politically correct culture. And so Jonah Hill fitted in much better in high school than Channing Tatum did. Channing Tatum was was the outcast, and, and Jonah Hill fit in. And then when they went to college in Twenty Two Jump Street, it was the opposite. And the, the way they pulled that off was really nice. The the joke I, I remember from that movie, which I love to this day, is I think it's in the first one. They're going they're going to high school on their first day, and they 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 both have their uh their rucksacks over one shoulder. And everyone everyone like mocks them for having it over one shoulder <laughs> when you should have it over both shoulders for you know your spine and your because <laughs> that 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 was so much the case. Like I, I 
I don't think I ever saw at my school people people having it over over one shoulder. <laughs> and of course, Superbad was totally iconic. Like I, I still make Superbad references like all the time. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you see the they they did the super bad but for women and it was oh they did oh god it was yeah what was it called i remember seeing it and it was book smart that's it wow let me look and that up. it was it was one of the worst films i've ever seen it was just like got me viscerally angry but uh they they tried to repeat it and i think like to be to be fair to them I wasn't their target audience, so like, uh, I'm sure that movie has significance for, uh, you know, Zuma teenage girls, but uh, not not one for me. And I think one that was overpraised by critics because of the, you know, yeah, what what the, was yeah sorry the politics yeah what was that one with with uh, Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg, stepdad. Did you see that one? Wow, I've I've never seen a Kevin Hart movie. I think he's he's pretty good. The one he did with The Rock was pretty good. His later one, which I was really really looking forward to when it came out, I thought it might be a revival of of, of that genre. Was Night School, and I think Night School totally fell flat. Um, but oh, the, so yeah, the, the stepdad ones were great. Um. The other one that I really liked was like I think it's called Seventeen with Zac Efron. I hope I'm getting. I hope I'm not confusing that with a different movie. Uh, was it just just Seventeen? Or... No, Seventeen again. I think. I think. Seventeen again. Oh. I hope I'm not confusing that for a different movie. I like Edge of Seventeen, but that's oh, that's, that's also good. Yeah, that, but that's yeah. a different genre, but that's also good. Yeah, with Woody Harrelson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it's Seventeen again. Yeah. I think it's probably like streaming just made people not want to go to the cinema to see a comedy. Because no. yeah, because like uh, obviously, I think we are too young to see any of these in the cinema, really. Yeah, sure. But that the people like five, ten years older than us must have been like, you know, every summer. Oh, I'll go and see the new Seth Rogen movie. Uh, but I think we were also just, like just young, just old enough to. First of all, when streaming was new, it wasn't boring and just like the thing you did. It was like, oh, my friend's got Netflix. Oh, that's cool. Um, and also like DVDs. Like I remember I would go, go, me and my two friends, the two friends that I mentioned earlier, the ones that stopped talking to me and I thought uh, for the night before was going to save me. <laughs> um, we'd go to one of their houses and like we'd like get a DVD and play it through his Xbox 360 onto like, that old, like an old plasma TV. Uh, and we'd eat like Doritos and crap. And it was just great. It was just great. Oh, that's brings back memories. Yeah, and I don't think there I don't was... think I don't think the kids nowadays do that. I also, also, just on that point, there's no such thing as split screen anymore on on consoles. <laughs> they they, they remove oh, wow. they remove split screens. I don't know what the kids do. Like I used to go to all like all summer, go to my friend's house. We play like Call of Duty, like Modern Warfare Two, split screen, or we play like Call of Duty Zombies from from World at War, split screen. It was epic. We just had fun. Now there's no split screen. I don't know what I don't they know. Removed what, they removed it. They removed the split screen's not been a thing in, in those kind of games for like for like six years, seven years, something like that. Oh no. Yeah, there's no more split screen. Imagine <laughs> that. Imagine you you get Call of Duty. Of course, Call of Duty nowadays are just total garbage. 
uh, to the point where they're actually trying to remake. We've got to the point where they're remaking. They're remaking video games. They remade Call of Duty Modern Warfare <laughs> One, and they're remaking. They remade Warfare Two, and apparently they're remaking Modern Warfare Three because they, they've run out of ideas. Mm. So imagine you get the re- the shitty remake of like Call of Duty Modern Warfare Three that, that you pay you know sixty pounds for, and then you can't even play sc- split screen with your friends. You know, you know that kind of the conversation about male loneliness, and you know, yeah, we, sure, we need a minister for male loneliness and mm-hmm. all that. What we need is we need the government to enact regulations to enforce split screen in first person <laughs> shooters and fund Seth Rogen movies <laughs> with with public money, and then you you know, bottom up, we solve we solve the problem of of male loneliness in the 21st century yeah they need to have like these subsidized packs which go out to like lonely <laughs> men where there's like a couple a few dvds like uh a copy of like some like good split screen game a few packets of doritos <laughs> like there's like you know like one box like like you know in like scandinavia you get these baby boxes like whenever you have a baby the government sends you like a big box full of like baby stuff we need oh, that wow for, that's that's so sinisterly Scandinavian. <laughs> we need that for men. That's what the minister minister for men. Come on, get 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 to work. We need the man box. It needs to have like some cool gadgets in there. All stuff that like builds like like stuff that you need another person to play with. Yeah, and we has the like that that time period had the the male kind of branding. Which kind of still exists, but it it seems much worse now. Like like you, you know the products called like the man box, and they're like shave yourself with whiskey flavored foam or whatever, like shaving cream. Uh, that that kind of that yeah, kind of horrible. Yeah, yeah. black black rifle coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I can't tell you how much I hate fucking black black <laughs> rifle coffee. <laughs> anyway, let's let's not go on the the, the, the freaking brat oh my yeah, god. Yeah, let's they, they post all these fucking videos where it's them, they're like, Ugh, we're real mad, we go quad biking, we drink we drink black rifle coffee, bro, we're not no liberal pussies. And it's like Ted it's, Cruz uh, firing the bacon <laughs> on his machine gun. <laughs> like, wow. Right, we're 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 about as far removed from Woody Allen films <laughs> as you know, bacon and machine gun. That's pretty <laughs> pretty antithetical to the to the Woody Allen ethos. Oh, just one one thing. There was one yeah. one movie that came out after after like the decline of those type of movies that was actually good. It was called I think it was called Game Night, twenty twenty seventeen. Yes. Twenty eighteen. Yes. That was so good. I watched I watched Game Night on my flight to the US when I when I uh, first studied abroad and went, went to California and I was like I need like a comfort movie to to just watch with yeah it's like Jason Bateman and Rachel Rachel McAdams McAdams yeah uh yeah good movie Game yeah. Night that was that was like a one of a kind they just like released that movie and that was it it was so good what what I don't understand is how Netflix consistently makes such shit. It's like it's almost unbelievable. You would yeah. think they would like get a game a game night out there or like a, a just a generic pretty good comedy. 
but they they fail every time. Yeah. I and don't then, know and what then all, it the, is. all the series that people actually like, they cancel it after one or two seasons. Like Netflix is actually a disgusting company. Yeah, but back back when they started, it was it was a mark of quality. Yeah. It was like oh, they have House of Cards. Yeah. Like a Netflix original was. Yeah, exactly. Was I remember. That. I remember what that. You I remember that. I remember. I remember being on Netflix back when I first got it, twenty fourteen or whatever that was, twenty fifteen. And I would look through the the show, I look through the series, and if it had Netflix original in it, I'd want to click it. If it didn't, I would just not click it. <laughs> and now, oh boy. Yeah. Did you ever see Sausage Party? No, I didn't. I th- I thought like Seth Rogen's gone so far, so far down the hill. I like, I'm not. Gonna yeah, subject, I... I'm not going to subject <laughs> myself to this. I hadn't seen it, but uh, I, I I was just on the Wikipedia page, and it's the voice cast. And uh, one of the characters in Sausage Party is a Middle Eastern lavash. He is implied to be Muslim as he desires 77 bottles of extra virgin olive oil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Wait. okay, maybe I'll give it a try. Maybe I'll give it a try. Which is a funny joke. <laughs> All right, see you next time, guys.